Hi, and welcome to our new podcast, True Crimes and Weird Times. I'm Ashley. And I'm Kim. And today we're talking about the Moon-Eyed People of Fort Mountain, a group of people who could have possibly predated the Cherokee. And I will be telling you about the nun of Monza. She was a nun in the 1500s. She had an affair with an aristocrat who lived next door, and that led to secret pregnancies, magic potions, a murder spree, torture. Guys, it is insane. Sister Virginia Maria was born Mariana de Leyva in Marino in Milan, Italy, somewhere around December 1575. She was born into a wealthy family, and after the death of her mother in 1576, which was less than a year after she was born, Mariana was subject to a long trial over her inheritance. Her mother had wanted to leave half of her possessions to Mariana and the other half to her first son, Marco Pio, from a previous marriage. But the will was contested by Marco's four sisters. And eventually the trial ended and the ruling was not in Mariana's favor. Now, when I say Marco's four sisters, these sisters are also her mother's children. Her mother's name was Virginia. Uh, And her mother apparently had five kids with her first marriage and then one with her second and was only going to give half to the first child from the first marriage and the other half to the first child from the second marriage and just forget about those other kids. (laughs) After the trial ended, Mariana was sent to live with her aunts until 1588 when her father decided she would become a nun at the Monastery St. Margarita. I guess her dad didn't really want to mess with raising a daughter after his wife died, so he kind of just went off to live his best life in France. Okay. Left her with her aunts and then was like, "Mm, let's just make her a nun and then I really won't have to worry about her. Actually, that's not a bad idea. I have two girls of mom. Options. <laughs> her father saw her for the last time on March 15th, 1589, and promised to leave her inheritance of 6,000 lire. But in reality, he never gave it to her. Uh, she received yearly incomes for being a nun, but she never got her inheritance that mm. that whole trial was about. On September 12th, 1591, Mariana became Sister Virginia Maria, which she took the name after her mother. And she was described as modest, respectful, obedient. She made friends easily. She was super popular in Monza. And despite being a nun, she was actually pretty powerful because she was still from that wealthy family and status was everything. Okay, yeah. So, nun or not, people still respected her a lot. Right. In 1597, Sister Virginia was teaching at the convent school for girls. This is where she met Giovanni Paolo Osio. Now, originally she met him because he climbed a tree next to the wall to flirt with one of the students. (laughs) So he lived next door to this monastery. There's just a wall separating the properties. So he climbs this tree and he's leaning over the wall and he's flirting with one of these schoolgirls. That Virginia is teaching. Now, Sister Virginia was not okay with this. She chases him off, and the dad of this schoolgirl actually immediately pulls her out of school and marries her off to avoid a scandal. Wow. You know, flirting. It's a big deal. After this, Giovanni is accused of murdering a man, and Giovanni knows that Sister Virginia is the administrator of justice for Monza, and he starts trying to contact her. So basically what the administrator of justice does is she kind of helps with, she's like a judge. She kind of okay. helps with sentencing and 
and deciding what punishments happen and different things like that. Okay. But she is not having it. She orders his arrest. She's like, no way. I'm not talking to this guy. He killed someone. He's flirting with my students. I'm not showing him any leniency. So after she orders his arrest, he flees Monza and she just bans him for a year. Like, you can't come back. Like, if I can't arrest you, just stay away from here. <laughs> but being from a rich and powerful family, As you, it know, goes. you know how these things are. Yeah. The murder charge just kind of went poof. And at the end of his year, he returns to Monza. It's pretty ballsy. It is. Kill a guy and then just, like, <laughs> come back. Hey, guys, what's up? I'm going to move right next door again. Too. He <laughs> went right back to his same house next oh, door to the monastery. Perfect. By the time he gets back, though, Sister Virginia has actually kind of just forgotten all about all of that stuff. She doesn't care anymore for some reason. So she doesn't hold grudges. Right. Absolutely. It's a good trait, I guess. (laughs) Very nunly. Yes. So she's not angry with him anymore, and she actually starts spying on him because she decides that this is just the most beautiful man she has ever seen. (laughs) Like, this guy is her Brad Pitt. She just, she cannot get over him. Obviously, Giovanni takes notice. If he's going to be spying over the wall at schoolgirls, he's going to notice this young, attractive nun spying on him at some point. And they start exchanging letters. They pass them back and forth over that wall with a string. And then eventually, Giovanni starts sending gifts to her as well. So finally, in August of 1599, they meet face-to-face on the front steps of the convent for the very first time. The nun was so nervous and in love that it caused her to become ill. Precious. And then they have their first sexual encounter a few months later around Christmas. Mm -hmm. Precious. Mm. Now, after this encounter, Giovanni has a blacksmith make him a set of keys to the convent and make a set of keys for his home to give to Sister Virginia so they can continue this affair. They also had help from others in the convent to hide the affair. Um, There were four other nuns. The two that were most involved were Sister Benedetta and Sister Otavia. And there was also a priest named Paolo Aragon who was friends with Giovanni. Sister Virginia would later claim during her trial that Giovanni had her under a spell using an amulet made from a magnet. It was in the shape of a gold breast, and she claimed Giovanni made her kiss it to put her under his spell. Kinky. Right, yeah. (laughs) Ronnie. Christmas. (laughs) About two years into the relationship... Sister Virginia becomes pregnant, and in 1602, she gives birth to a child, but unfortunately, it is stillborn. Well, this kind of, I guess, snaps her out of it. She's going, holy cow, what am I doing here? And she tries to break off this relationship, so she dumps all of her keys down a well, and she starts resorting to spells that are supposed to combat lovesickness, you know, to, to fight off that breast magnet that breast, she had The kissed. breast power? Yes, yes. <laughs> Despite this, the relationship eventually resumes, and two years later, Sister Virginia is pregnant again, and this time she gives birth to a daughter. She names her Alma Francesca Margarita, because when you're trying to lay low, you should definitely name your child after the place where you live. Sounds fun. Right. I'm yeah. not saying. Logical. Huh? Yeah. Giovanni actually takes the child to raise her. He legitimizes her, and he says that she's the daughter of one of the servants in the monastery. It's pretty Uh, impressive that he took on the the child to raise. Yeah, especially at that time. Right. 
Again, Sister Virginia attempts to end the relationship with Giovanni. Uh, there was a hole in the wall between the monastery and his home that they would sneak through. She has that boarded up. She has the windows facing his home bricked up inside the monastery. Oh. So she can't even look at him. Right. She moves her room to the other side of the monastery. So she's as far away from him as humanly possible. And I found one source that claims she went so far as to eat his poop. Trying to make herself repulsed by him. Right. I mean, who hasn't I mean, eaten their ex's poop? Could you imagine, like, you know how many crushes you have in middle school? <laughs> what if that was the <laughs> way to get over your ex? Middle you have to eat their poop. Awful. But I have to wonder how she got the poop. Like, do you ask for it? Do you have to sneak in and take the poop? Weird. Surely they had, like, sophisticated... Ways of going plumbing through. systems, like I mean, I for the time, right? But like I don't. Where can you go dig that out? Ooh. Okay, I'm done. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> she probably didn't actually eat his poop, I but you know. And now, once again, despite all of this, uh, the relationship eventually resumes again. He must have been quite the charmer. He had to have been. So, in the following year, it's 1606. They are now seven years into the affair. And there's a new nun at the convent. Her name is Sister Katerina, and she starts causing trouble. She had a very bad temper, and she was accused of stealing from the monastery. Now, Sister Virginia, remember, she's an administrator of justice, so mm -hmm. she's kind of also in charge of disciplining the newer nuns. Right. And so Sister Katerina wants to get back at Sister Virginia for all these punishments because, you know, how dare you punish me for the things I did? Well... Inside the monastery, I guess it's not a very well-kept secret, the affair. Mm -hmm. So she starts threatening to expose Sister Virginia to a visiting vicar who was an assistant to the archbishop. This is bad news for her. Right. She's a nun. She cannot be good. having an affair and a love child <laughs> with the guy next door. No bueno. So Sister Virginia and some of the other nuns who had helped keep the secret try and talk her out of exposing them but this nun will not be dissuaded she is determined you wronged me i'm gonna get you back i really don't like her yeah she's the worst so eventually she does something again pretty stupid like she messes up another nun's bed like bed linens or something something stupid just Ew. like kid petty petty yeah well they lock her in a chicken coop as punishment and try one more time to talk her out of exposing Sister Virginia. Sister Benedetta and Sister Otavia, the ones I mentioned earlier that had mm -hmm. been helping, were also there. They also tried to talk her out of it, and she was not budging. So they went and got Giovanni and snuck him into this chicken coop where he bludgeons her to death. Oh. They then hide her body open the windows to stage an escape, and the nuns start spreading the rumor that she has escaped and ran away. Okay. They then cut off her head, throw it down a well, Ooh. and then they hide her body in a snowfield. After this, Sister Virginia takes this opportunity to threaten all the other nuns, if you ever attempt to expose me, the same will happen to you. Eesh. And this is just the beginning for Giovanni. He has already gotten a taste for this. He says, this is my solution to everything now. <laughs> Although, if you remember, I mean, he was accused of murder before. Right. This might not be his first murder. We don't know for sure. Well, this works for a little while. Things calm down. 
Um, it's all quiet for about a year. They continue their affair, no problems. And then rumors start circulating through Monza of the relationship. Giovanni traces these rumors back to the blacksmith who had been making them keys all these years. Yeah. Goes ahead and just kills him as well. Oh, okay. Giovanni also attempts to murder an apothecary named Renario Roncino, who was spreading the rumor that Giovanni's child belonged to Sister Virginia, which she did. I mean, yeah. Um, But his arquebus failed, and he was unsuccessful. Now, an arquebus is like one of the first original pistols. Okay. You had to put it up on a stand and like balance it when you shot. So I... I can see how that'd be a little unreliable. (laughs) He could have just not used that. (laughs) Right, like knives probably. Or quicker. Yeah. (laughs) He also wanted to kill the priest Aragon. You know, while they're killing people, might as well kill everybody. The priest who had originally helped him all, he just wanted to go ahead and eliminate all possible threats to their secret. But Sister Virginia talks him out of this one. Like, whoa, man, that's far enough. Too much. At this point, it has been eight years since the beginning of the affair, and Sister Virginia has had two pregnancies. They have now murdered two people and attempted to murder one more. They're threatening multiple people in an attempt to conceal this relationship, but all of this is too late because the rumors have spread, the rumors of the murders have spread, and eventually the governor of Milan hears about it and sends officers to arrest Giovanni. While he's imprisoned, both Sister Virginia and Giovanni send letters to the governor professing his innocence and claiming Giovanni can't possibly stay in prison because he has a medical condition and it's (laughs) so hard to breathe in that damp, dingy cell. Oh, no. Governor doesn't care, obviously. (laughs) But it doesn't matter because he's only in there for a month before Giovanni escapes. Oh. And he returns to Monza to hide out in Sister Virginia's monastery. Oh, okay, smart. Right. Who's going to think to look for him there? He then sends one of his accomplices. So apparently he has, like, some lackeys. He's an aristocrat. Like, he has money. He has the status. He has, like, just this collection of people that he can get to do anything he wants them to, basically. Mm -hmm. And he calls on one of his little lackeys, and he sends them... To finish off that apothecary that had been spreading the rumor about his child. And frame Aragon for the murder, the priest. The guy does successfully kill the apothecary. And then he hides the murder weapon in the priest Aragon's home. Well, obviously the police somehow find out that Aragon has the murder weapon. I don't know what they did to make them suspect him in the first place, but they did. Hmm. Aragon is arrested and he's tortured, but ultimately he's found innocent and they release him. While he's hiding out in the monastery, some of the other nuns notice Sister Virginia's accomplices, Sister Benedetta and Sister Otavia, carrying extra food to their rooms. And they report this to a cardinal, which forces Giovanni to flee. And it also causes the arrest of Sister Virginia, you know, hiding a fugitive. (laughs) Apparently, she did not go quietly. There are reports that she escaped her ties. She ran away. She hid. When she was finally caught, she grabbed a sword to swing at the officers. <laughs> she was to not going to fight down. back. I mean, a priest was tortured. Like, 
I, I have to imagine they know that torture is coming, so I, I okay, can yeah. see I can fighting see. back against, you know, arrested and tortured. So meanwhile, Giovanni has already set his sights on his next two victims, and he has decided that the two nuns that were helping him, Sister Benedetta and Sister Otavia, are next on his list. Now, these two women actually had been in this from the start. They had helped cover up their meetings. They had literally delivered both of Sister Virginia's illegitimate children. They witnessed the first murder, and they hid him in their own bedrooms, which you would think would just mean, like, I, you know, they're in it with me. We're they can't be caught. They'll be in just as much trouble. Yeah. But he takes it as they know too much and they need to be taken out. Well, I can see it both ways. Yeah. Like the logical way or the murdery way, whichever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing Giovanni needs to do is get the women away from the convent. So he sends another one of his lackeys to question the women about Sister Virginia. The interrogation freaks them out because they don't know who this guy is, why he's asking about Sister Virginia, why he's asking them specifically. So they immediately contact Giovanni and ask him to help them escape. So that very evening, they sneak through the same hole in the wall that Giovanni and Sister Virginia used for their secret hookups all these years. (laughs) And they meet Giovanni to try and sneak off. They head out of Monza, and when they come to a bridge, Giovanni just throws Sister Otavia in the water and starts beating her in the head with his arcubus. If you can't rely (laughs) on it, it. yeah. (laughs) If you can't shoot it, beat him with it. Um, So he's thrown her in this river, he's beating her with his arcubus, and then he just leaves her for dead and carries on with Sister Benedetta. Now, I don't know where Sister Benedetta was. Why she didn't see this happen or why she would continue traveling with him after it happened. Or maybe he just, how did he explain away Sister Octavia being gone suddenly? I was like, oh, I really got to take a restroom break. And he like beats the crap out of Octavia. She ran. I don't know where she went. Right. Yeah. She decided to go back. It's fine. Let's keep going. (laughs) No need to be suspicious. You didn't watch me kill another nun before. Figured it out. Got it. But it turns out. Sister Otavia was not dead, and she actually managed to find help, and she was taken to a different monastery where she confesses all of her crimes before she succumbed to her injuries. Basically, this all just backfired for him. He's trying to keep it a secret, and he just pushed her to tell authorities. That archivist really doesn't work. Right, yeah. They're basically (laughs) useless. The next day, Giovanni attempts to kill Sister Benedetta by throwing her down a well. He likes wells. (laughs) She breaks two ribs and her leg, but is ultimately rescued, <laughs> taken to a monastery where she actually recovers and confesses to her crimes. Okay. So I just want to say Giovanni is a terrible serial killer. I'm beginning to think so. Right. He's really bad at this. <laughs> After the two nuns confess, authorities find the body of Giovanni's first victim exactly where the nuns said it would be. They find her head in the well. They find her body in the snowfield. Now... After Sister Katerina's remains were discovered, the governor immediately declares that Giovanni is guilty. He wants his head. He is to be sent straight to the gallows as soon as he's arrested. He is a dead man. He's not getting out of this. Right. So Giovanni flees to his friend Taverna's home to seek refuge. But ultimately, 
I don't know if there was an altercation. I couldn't find exactly why, mm-hmm. but Taverna takes him to the basement of his home and kills him. Okay. So that's the end of Giovanni. He's murdered by a friend in an attempt to hide from the police. He probably didn't want to be tortured either. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be tortured. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sister Virginia has been interrogated a few times now. Mm-hmm. The first time she tells the officers all about her relationship with Giovanni, how he had bewitched her, and how she had completely lost her free will. and Oh, the breast necklace. The breast necklace. Okay, and Everything. Yeah. She tells them, you know, none of this was, was of her own choosing. He's forced her into all of these things for all of these years. A few days later, they interrogate her a second time, and this time they torture her to make sure she's telling the truth. Oh, okay. That should work. Yeah. The priest, Aragon that had helped them before and had been framed for murder, is also brought back in for another interrogation where he's tortured a second time. Oh, no, that poor guy. His wife is tortured just to make sure she doesn't know anything. And the two additional nuns that had been helping that I mentioned before were also tortured Mm. for information. So everybody's getting tortured. Well, that's just the way it was. Everybody gets tortured. Everybody gets tortured. Finally, the punishment is announced. Sister Virginia has been found guilty, and her sentence is to be walled alive into a room in a monastery in Milan with only a small door to pass food and water through and a tiny window so she has light to read her Bible. Okay. Let me just say that again. (laughs) She is to be walled, bricked into a room. No, thank you. I don't know if they gave her any furniture. Like, I don't know if she had a bed in there. She doesn't have a place to poop. Like, (laughs) I guess she can have a chamber pot. Maybe she passes out the door where her food comes in and out. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know the details. But I do know she remains in this room for 14 years. At the end of that 14 years, they decide that she is reformed and she is released. And she actually chooses to remain in this monastery and live the rest of her life there. I wouldn't. No. I wouldn't choose. It's like you get released from your prison cell and decide to just stay in the prison for the rest of your life. No, thank you. Well, where was she going to go? Yeah, I mean, she's still a nun. She, she has to live in a convent somewhere, I guess. Yeah. And she goes on to write letters to other nuns who are facing challenging times to provide support and encouragement. And... The rest of her life, she's remembered as this kind of mystic okay. for all of her sage advice and her wisdom. And, you know, she went through all of this terrible stuff. So I guess she's really encouraging to other nuns. Like, oh, you're having a hard time adjusting to nunnery life? Like, here's what I went th- I, I was literally. A, <laughs> I was bricked up in a wall. I was bricked up in a <laughs> I murdered some people. Well, I guess she didn't actually murder them. But. No, she didn't. You know, my boyfriend murdered some people. I was under a spell. Like, what's your what you got going on? It's not that big of a deal. I want to be that kind of motivational speaker. <laughs> right? But that's it, guys. That is the story of the nun of Monza. There's several books and movies about her life. The most recent one, I think, came out in the 80s. So they're not, you know, new stories. But they'd probably be worth a watch and... A read, and they're not entirely based in fact, but they got the basic storyline in there.
Since uh, most of our starting listener base will more than likely be local, uh, hi mom. Figured I'd call her out. <laughs> so she's gonna be listening. She better be listening. She better. She's look. She thought we already had one out, uh, and she she's was asking not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to keep the story local to us, but uh, not local enough so you can find us. Sorry. Don't stalk us. Don't stalk us. They're not going to stalk us. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's going to stalk us. Um, It's something I've always been kind of intrigued by because I spent a lot of my childhood here at Fort Mountain State Park. I've never been. Well, you don't don't like nature. (laughs) I don't like the outdoors. Anything where there's bugs and heat and like dirt. That's probably what kept you alive. Yeah, that's why I'm alive today. (laughs) Uh, but I spent a lot of my childhood there. If Four Mountain State Park has a ton of trails and our famous man-made beach, you know. Gross. (laughs) But on one of the trails, there's a plaque that talks about the Moon-Eyed People. And it's, I think it's one of the first stories of the unknown that I was really interested in. Fort Mountain State Park was actually founded in 1938. It's in Chatsworth, Georgia. Uh, It's part of the Southern Appalachian Mountains. It is the mountain, the state park. It's aptly named for an ancient fortified wall that sits near the top of the mountain. It zigzags along the crest, and it's about 885 feet, so it's not even a quarter of a mile. Uh, The heights vary between two and six feet tall at certain points. It's said to have been dated at about 400 and 500 BCE which was way before the Europeans arrived. but That's an old wall. A very old wall. But according to Cherokee lore, it also predates them. So when they That's arrived... A very old wall. Right, uh, so when they got here, it was already here. There's legends of these same kind of walls that kind of dot the southern Appalachians. They don't know what they were really built for. Some people say that the walls were part of a fortification of some kind. Thus the name Fort Mountain. Others say that it could have been parts of a temple. And I found that supposedly this temple contained a giant stone snake with ruby eyes. But... Basilisk style? Basilisk style. Uh, But there was only a couple of places that said that, so I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But all the sources that I could find do claim one thing. That they were built by the Moon-Eyed People. Now, the Moon-Eyed people were a race of people that were briefly mentioned in Cherokee folklore that, like I said, lived in the Southern Appalachians. Some mentioned North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama. And while Cherokee folklore have many tales of beings and spirits, supernatural beings, the Moon-Eyed people were not ever spoken of in a supernatural way. They're not elves or anything crazy. Yeah, nothing crazy. They were human. They just looked different than the Native Americans. They were said to be nocturnal. They were pale-skinned. They had light or blue eyes, and that they couldn't see very well during the day. I feel like I'm a moon-eyed person. (laughs) Wait, do you have blue eyes? I don't. I don't have blue eyes, but I did used to have blonde hair. I hate sunlight. Pretty nocturnal. Freak. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, essentially, what I'm picturing is someone with albinism. Some places that I researched said that they were small in stature, but the actual plaque at Fort Mountain called them a tall, robust people. So I'm not entirely sure. Do you have 
the actual plaque? Can we see? Do you have what it said on it? Um, I can add it on our social media. Okay. It's a kind of long, but I'll post a picture that you can read. One source that I found said that they could see only in certain phases of the moon. In fact, one specific source stated that the full moon was too bright for them, and that's what led to their demise. They were easily taken over because they couldn't see in the full moon. Their um, eyeballs sound worthless. <laughs> I think they just needed glasses. That's probably some sunglasses. Just, just some Transition glasses. lenses. That would have worked. Yeah. <laughs> and also that they could have possibly lived underground. Which would make sense if they can't be out during the day. The earliest written mention of them is in a book called New Views of the Origin of the Tribes and Nations of America by Benjamin Smith Barton in 1797 that claims that the Cherokee fought and expelled the Moonon people toward Tennessee or possibly West Virginia. Or the legend that I like the most is that they expelled them to live underground in caverns forever, which means we now have a race of subterranean people. Living under Fort Mountain. Right. So the Cherokee basically came in and just kicked them out? That's what it sounds like. Okay. Uh, the book actually mentions a, I don't, I can't remember if it was called a war or if they just fought them, but that they, they kicked them out, yeah. Not much else is said about the Moonai people as far as, you know, like what kind of people they were, what they believed, their lifestyles, but there are plenty of theories about where they may have come from. Uh, one of those theories... And the most popular theory that I could find is that they are actually the Welsh who migrated here from Alabama uh, alongside the Welsh prince, Maddock. Uh, It said that he and a group of Welsh settlers landed here in 1170. Wait, the prince was with them? The prince came here? Right. The legend itself, I think he wanted to leave. He didn't want to be prince. So they came here. Uh, They landed here in 1170, which is actually 300 years earlier than Christopher Columbus. It was believed that they landed in Mobile Bay, Alabama, and made their way north towards Tennessee, and they were never seen or heard from again. In the following centuries, there were actually stories of fair-skinned, blue-eyed natives, like Native Americans, who spoke a language similar to Welsh. So maybe they integrated. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, we have records of different settlers doing that from Europe. Right. Right, yeah. So it's it's very possible. Uh, the stonework that dot the Appalachian that I mentioned is said to be attributed to Maddock and his settlers because they're kind of close in the way they look to stonework in Wales. So, they're structurally similar. Right. There's, there was mention of a bit of stonework near DeSoto Falls, Alabama. I couldn't find any pictures of it. So I don't know if it's still standing or if it's just talked about. Uh, But it's said to have had an almost identical setting, layout, and method of construction to Dalwithelen Castle in Wales, which is the birthplace of Prince Matic. So that's one theory. Another theory suggests that the Moonide people were actually members of the Guna tribe that migrated to Appalachia from Panama. I couldn't find anything specific linking them with the Moonide people, but the Guna are an indigenous people in Panama who hold a high rate of albinism. So that would kind of go with the whole right. fair skin, blue eyed. And for reference, about 1 in 20,000 has albinism worldwide. In the Guna tribe, that rate drops to 1 in 150 people. That's a lot. Right. Those who do have the albinism trait, 
They're held in high regard. Uh, they're given the title of Children of the Moon, which, I mean, kind of similar. pretty similar, yeah. You know, because of their albinism, they're sensitive to the sun. They go out and work and play late afternoon at night. Also in their culture, I found that they have a specific duty to defend the moon from a dragon who tries to eat it during lunar eclipses. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I picture a small child with a sword. Trying to fight off. A lunar dragon. With the nun of Monza and her sword. With the, <laughs> with the nun of Monza. <laughs> Author Barbara Alice Mann suggests that the Moonon people were actually descendants of the Adena culture of Ohio, who were astronomers and were known for bu- building effigy mounds, which are similar to the ones that dot the Appalachian. She suggests that instead of the Cherokee actually driving them out of their homes, that they just integrated with the Moonon people or... Those of the Adena culture. Okay. That that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Were the Adena people known to be fair-skinned? It doesn't mention that, but I'm wondering if it has to do with just the stories themselves. Gotcha. I actually even found an old Reddit post while I was researching. And I found a theory by someone that it would make sense. It makes sense to me. They mentioned that the Cherokee history tells of a white council, and a red council. The white council was made up of priests and elder chiefs, and they were in charge during times of peace. The red council was typically young warriors and young chiefs, and they were in charge around times of war. You know, so they kind of, it was like checks and balances Okay. a little bit. The commenter goes on to say that by the time of European contact, the white council had been replaced by medicine men who then started earning their titles based on merit instead of uh, descendant descendants yeah uh but that and that the white council was expelled so it's possible that those members of the white council could be the moonod people and maybe them being the white council maybe had to do with just kind of a translation thing yeah apparently they observed the lunar cycles that was a big part of their religion so i can kind of see what he's saying Makes sense. Yeah. So maybe. It could be any of these. It could be none of these. Uh, it could just be a story used by the Cherokee as, you know, for their kids to say, hey, don't go in the caves at night. The moon-eyed people will get <laughs> the, you. The moon-eyed people will get you. So we might never know. But somebody built those walls. Right. I mean. I would love to. It, honestly, I mean, if the Cherokee say it predates them. That's really odd, but what if it's just another people that came by? Uh, like, just another native tribe or something. I mean, it could have been, but it seems like if they're going to go through all that trouble to build these walls that could stand for hundreds of years, right. they would stay there. And that they would have some use. I'm curious as to what the use would It could just be fortifications, but... Right, but that's a lot of effort and a lot of wall to build. Because right. this is a really long wall, right? Right. Well, they're all over. They're all over. The specific wall at Fort Mountain is like a quarter of a mile. But still, it's By hand, to build. that's yeah, a lot of, build. lot of work to just build it and move on. That's, yeah. That's kind of crazy. Maybe, maybe it was just a territory thing. Could maybe this is, this is where we live. So, I don't know. But also, as I was researching... I noticed that a strange statue would come up in the search results. Uh, and I'll, I can also share a picture of that, too, on our social media. It was found in the 1840s in Murphy, North Carolina. And the people there believe that it actually depicts the moon on people. 
the statue stands about three feet tall, and it's it, they call it a conjoined person, but it looks like two different, two separate bodies. Yeah, looking so. at the picture, it's like the statue itself is conjoined. It's one solid statue, but the, right. the bodies are definitely separate. Right. There's, it looks like there's four arms. Yeah. So I'm, it looks like two separate bodies to me, but mm-hmm. uh, their heads are round. The faces are carved into the heads. It looks... Um, it's very primitive. Primitive, yeah. And actually, it went on display in 2015 in the Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy, North Carolina, if you ever... If you're around those parts, I want to see it. And it's it's displayed as a statue of the Moon-Eyed People. Right. Okay. That is what it says. And because I do the Weird Time segment, I can't end this without a ghost story or two. I love ghost stories. <laughs> There have been um, sightings of shadow figures. Some say they're wearing fur skin robes that patrol the walls at Fort Mountain. Some people have mentioned the sound of distant beating drums. Mm. I also found a great story on a website called urbanlegendsonline.com about a group of friends who were hiking along a trail and stopped to take a photo of one of the guys with them. As they did, the young man screamed and fainted and later died in a hospital two days later. When they developed the film, there was a ghostly woman shown in the photo. So he died from fear. Yes, that's what it says. That's about two days after. Two he days got after. Scared. Okay. He was scared for two days, I guess. <laughs> uh, and if you check it out online, you can see the photo. It's it looks very photoshopped. <laughs> I think if someone took the girl from the ring and just photoshopped her behind a person, right? Yes, yeah, that's exactly what this is. Yeah, that's what it looks like. So you can check that out if you want to. But that is the story of the Moon-Eyed People in Fort Mountain. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times and Twitter at TCWT Podcast. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Email us story suggestions or share your personal true crime slash weird time stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us an iTunes review. Reviews are a free way to support the show and help us gain new followers. We'll see you next week. Bye.